Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Uh, at the at the present time, there's uh, quite a bit of research going on in the area of algae, um, in terms of um, investigating algae as uh, food sources, and particularly sources of um, of protein and um, other nutrients and um, yeah, one of the universities I've been involved with are, are looking at um, yeah, ways in which we can um, optimise the, the growth of algae to, to real growth here. One of the common um, algaes that uh, people are looking at, of course, is kelp. That's a giant algae. These, um, when I lived in Tasmania for a while, uh, we lived quite near um, where there were uh, well, we had um, some land near where there were some very large kelp beds. And, um, yeah, it, it's quite an amazing plant. We'd see a lot of it washed up on the beaches. And, of course, even uh, near where I live now, uh, we occasionally get uh, kelp uh, washed up on the uh, on the beaches here. Now, that's a very large plant. There's very, very small algae as well. And uh, one of those... Um, algae are called um, coccolithophores and I, it's spelt and I'll spell it out for you because it's a tricky spelling and I, I often get mixed up myself but it's C-O-C-C-O-L-I-T-H-O-P-H-O-R-E-S. Well, running through again, C-O-C-C-O-L-I-T-H-O-P-H-O-R-E-S. Now, if you look those up on uh, Wikipedia or in a science book, uh, the, some of the images are amazing of these tiny little unicellular algae. So these are among the smallest of the algae. Uh, they're a marine algae, so they um, live and grow in salt water. Um, and they have a uh, unique little um, uh, flagellum-like structure or a little sort of like papilla-type structure that uh, moves them along. So it relates to their swimming, uh, but also to how they can uh, capture particles. Um, now, one of the outstanding features of um, coccolithophores is uh, that they um, absorb the calcium in, out in the seawater and excrete it um, as a uh, calcium carbonate uh, exoskeleton, um, and which means that they're the smallest skeletons in the marine world. They're really, really tiny little, uh, you know, really uh, small uh, creatures. But um, there's about 200 species of these, uh, this form of algae that live in the oceans. And of course, they're part of plankton, which constitutes um, 98% of the living biomass in oceans. So the other 2% is the animals that we can see 
macroscopically that we don't need a microscope for, like crabs and fish and whales and you know octopuses and uh, all these sort of things, and the seashells and this sort of thing. So they're really tiny little creatures, and it's interesting when you think about the role that algae plays. That it's ninety-eight percent of the biomass in the oceans. Now, one of the fascinating things about um, uh, coccolithophores is that they have an essential role in the global carbon cycle um, through photosynthesis um, and, as I mentioned earlier, through uh, calcification. So these algae reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by converting carbon dioxide, um, water and minerals into oxygen and organic matter and also into calcium carbonate by calcification. So in other words, they're they're trapping the um, carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere, taking it in, and uh, as I said, with water, they're releasing oxygen, and then that um, uh, carbon dioxide becomes part of the calcium carbonate, which is the little shell on these um, coccolithophores. It, it's interesting, of course, that the coccolithophores and the rest of the phytoplankton uh, form the basis of the marine food chain. And they're responsible um, for about half of the global primary production of oxygen. And so, in effect, they're more important to our atmosphere than all of the Earth's rainforest. And I thought that's a fascinating thing, isn't it, really? that this plankton in the oceans produces a huge amount of um, the oxygen um, that we need, um, more than all the rainforest. Now, one of the things is, of course, we're clearing massive amounts of rainforest, but we need to remember that um, bushes, grass, pasture, all these um, living uh, organisms, these plants, are producing oxygen for us. And so that's why it's very important that we uh, maintain uh, that. It's um, interesting too, I remember seeing a, a documentary, I think it's called uh, Kiss the Ground or Kiss the Earth, and um, in that they showed the effect of, of pasture and the, the growth in summer, particularly in the northern hemisphere, on the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, of course, when spring comes um, and uh, the crops begin to grow, the um, leaves reappear on the trees and so forth, there's a significant and measurable drop in the carbon dioxide uh, levels in the atmosphere in those areas. It's um, quite amazing. So, uh, and I think this is really quite important as we consider the, uh, a lot of people are very concerned about global warming at the moment. And I think, um, you know, we, we can see from measurements that we are going through a cycle where uh, the, uh, you know, the Earth's temperature overall is increasing. And we do know that the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are increasing and um, 
this, you know, raises some concerns for people. But one of the things that uh, I, I look at is, uh, from this perspective is that as the, as the temperatures warm and it becomes, um, um, uh, we, we get these warmer temperatures, we're going to have increased evaporation and precipitation. And we're likely to see um, uh, more rainfall, particularly in desert areas and drier areas. And that was predicted many years ago. And, of course, uh, we're seeing that at the present time in, um, in Australia, which is, has massive amount of uh, desert, very low rainfall areas all through central Australia. And they've been receiving you know, the best rainfall um, for many, many years and, and in some areas on record um, in central Australia. And so this can make these whole areas, vast areas of desert, more, more productive um, also, we know in, in the past in Northern Europe and this sort of things, the, the climate was uh, much warmer. And I think I've mentioned before too that uh, we, we have uh, records in the past that it was certainly much warmer in the, in the past in many regions of uh, the world. And so um, in my mind, this is just my own personal opinion, that the, the global warming um, effect is, is part of a cycle and I don't think it's something that we should be so alarmed about. Now that's a different issue from saying well as um, you know uh, humans we need to be taking care of the environment. Matter of fact God reminds us in the uh, as John was inspired wrote in the book of Revelation um, in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, that will, God will destroy those that destroy the earth um, uh, at the judgment. And so it's a, a very important thing to understand that, uh, and particularly uh, as Christians, we need to be stewards of the environment and um, of our planet. And one of the things there is is, is looking at management um, and, and in particular, preserving the forests. Um, recently, I've seen some pictures of how huge some of the trees were in the past that were cut down by our forebears. I think I've mentioned it before that, you know, here in Australia on the East Coast, the, the massive um, uh, cedar forests that were here, uh, the trees were, were huge, uh, huge, and of course you see the remnants of some of the huge trees in the in the United States. I think in some of the national parks, you know, they're so so large that you could you know, cut a hole in the bottom of the tree and drive a car through. Um, and so these giant um, trees uh, have grown um, in the past, and they've been largely cut out. And we know we have massive concerns now as massive amounts of rainforests have been cleared, particularly in Madagascar being cleared in New Guinea, being um, cleared in, uh, in South America. Um, and um, the, this is certainly a concern because these you know, massive trees produce huge amounts of, of, um, of oxygen and they also take up the carbon dioxide. But on the other hand, we know that from the coal, the coal comes from vegetation that existed in the past and obviously there were massive amounts of vegetation that existed in the past. We have these massive uh, coal seams all around the world that are remnants of the forests that were destroyed during the massive volcanic ap uh, activity that occurred during the flood, during Noah's flood. 
um, when there was a massive catastrophic event occurred on the surface of the earth. Um, it was a, um, a supernatural event, of course, as God records, um, and many cultures around the world record the global flood, record that at that time man had grown extremely wicked um, and, um, and that God um, eliminated uh, much of uh, wicked mankind at that time. It's interesting that uh, this has been recorded in, you know, pre-Christian, pre-Judeo uh, cultures, or you know, such as um, the American Indians and and so forth in their in their cultures around the world. Um, and of course, if you're interested in this, you can read about. It. I have a section on this uh, in my book, uh, Evolution Impossible, uh, that uh, deals with the historical evidence uh, for the the flood. And so I think um, a lot of people are concerned about the higher carbon dioxide levels um, in the atmosphere at the moment, but that promotes plant growth. Our plants are going to grow much better um, and much more rapidly under these conditions. And as they grow, they produce more oxygen as well. Uh, so there's a whole cycle here that we're only beginning to understand. And it's interesting that these uh, coccolithophores, um, and as I said before, and the rest of phytoplankton form the basis of this marine food chain, but they're also responsible for about half of the global primary oxygen production. Um, and again, as you think about it, more important than the rainforests. And so this is something that is very important to bear in mind, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, how this, there's some amazing feedback cycles that scientists are still working out. We still don't fully understand. I guess one of the reasons I'm saying this is that it seems that there's a, a lot of fear being generated, particularly young people, about global warming. Now, in my personal view is that we need to concentrate on some of the other areas of pollution. In other words, you know, we pour a whole lot of waste into our ocean. Um, our oceans are acidified by carbon dioxide, but they're also acidified, and that can be part of a natural cycle, but they're also acidified by a lot of waste, sulfuric acid, industrial waste, and, and um, other materials, effluents flowing into the oceans that are acidic. Um, we have uh, the clearing of rainforests and the mismanagement of forests. I think that is, is you know, very uh, significant. Um, the, the overuse of, of plastics and the, the, you know, the dumping of, um, of these sort of things that change and affect our e ecosystems. And, yeah, all the things that poison our oceans, uh, I think this is... So important. They're the areas that we really, in my view, need to cut back on. And the fact that we generate so much waste, uh, we've developed a, um, a whole culture of consumerism whereby we, we make these things that are of very poor quality and then we, we throw them away. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't want to get uh, too much involved in that. But I, I think that, you know, there are very important environmental issues that we need to look at that involve uh, pollution and um, air quality, the, the role of plastics, all these sort of things uh, are, are also very, very Im important issues um, and perhaps play a, a much more significant role. And in actual fact, 
um, you know, if the Earth's temperature does warm slightly, uh, it may bring better rainfall uh, to a lot of desert areas, provide more opportunity to grow food in those areas, and also moderate the climates in the, um, you know, in the, in the very extremes where it's very cold at the moment and we can't grow food because it's so cold. Um, and so we need to remember there are a lot of, you know, feedback loops and, and so forth. Um, environmental, uh, you know, obviously some environmental scientists will make an issue of particular species that are likely to become extinct and this sort of thing um, as things warm. Um, from my reading, what will happen is there'll be just gradual shifts in location and we do a lot more damage to the environment um, by, you know, transporting species and introducing species and, and clearing land ourselves than is likely to happen through um, the, uh, a slight increase in temperature with, with global warming. And I remember doing some calculations some time ago that if all the coal deposits in the world were burnt and converted to carbon dioxide, that um, the amount of global warming... Um, would only be, you know, quite minimal really um, in, in the order of a degree or two uh, max. Now I'm not saying, saying that there aren't other uh, factors that, uh, that come into it, but that was my calculation. And one of the things that need to bear in mind is the role that cocoa lithophores can play in moderating climate. So let's have a little bit of um, looking at use. So these um, algae... Present, uh, possess a very, very small exoskeleton made of uh, multiple scales. And this exoskeleton or uh, coccosphere um, that covers the cell is made by an inner layer of organic body scales and an outer layer of minuscule calcite plates. So calcite is a form of calcium carbonate. And uh, they're called, um, uh, as I said, coccoliths. And um, the coccoliths or and the organic scales are secreted internally um, within the cell and then extruded to the surface of the cell where they form this protective colouring. And again, I suggest you know go on to Wikipedia or or uh, just just Google um, coccolithophores and. Um, and go on to images and you'll see some amazing structures, absolutely fascinating and really beautiful structures. Um, they're of extraordinary design. And although there are other microalgae that uh, form exoskeletons, uh, the coccoliths are distinct and unique. Um, they uh, possess um, remarkably small shells um, in between... Um, five to ten microns, um, and um, they're uh, also called, um, uh, sometimes they're called nanoplankton as well because they're so small. And of course we find fossil records of these, so they go back a, a long, long time. One of the uh, fascinating things is that um, the, the wide range of shapes. So you can get a star or rose or spindle or it can be a pentagon or conical. Um, and a lot of them have uh, quite um, exceptional geometric uh, attributes, uh, you know, with uh, pentagonal scales and, um, and so forth. Some of them form dodecahedrons. 
Um, it's quite amazing. And um, these little skeletons, as I said, can you know, be in the order of just uh, 10 micrometres across. Um, and remember, a, a micrometre is a thousandth of a millimetre. So they're, they're quite fascinating little uh, uh, creatures or little plants, really, that are living there in the ocean. Now, these scales, these little um, uh, calcite scales, are thought to perform several functions for the organism. But there's still debate. Scientists are still studying this. Um, and some of the suggested functions relate uh, to protection. Uh, some are involved in um, uh, flotation. Uh, some involved in light regulation um, and others in biochemical balance. So remember these little creatures, they use the sunlight to uh, as involved. They, um, so they possess chlorophyll and they utilise sunlight um, via photosystems to uh, catalyse the conversion of carbon dioxide and water into um, oxygen and um, so forth and uh, forming the carbonate. And one of the hypotheses that has really caught the attention of... Um, one scientist, and uh, there's a, a really, really good article uh, or good chapter on um, uh, coccolithophores um, that's been published um, in the book um, Design and Catastrophe, 51 Scientists Explore Evidence in Nature. Uh, so it's a book I've referred to um, recently a few times, uh, published by Andrews University Press. And the author of the article... Dr. Amelia uh, Belia, B-E-L-I-A, she uh, talks about that uh, one of the things that has really captured her attention in particular is the flotational buoyancy function of these um, little plates, these little scales that are on the outside of the cell for the cell. And so the algae need to maintain their position within the photic zone and the ocean. So they have to have access to sunlight and um, they have to be able to uh, control their rate of sinking and, and flotation. And so um, she actually uses a, an illustration. She said, imagine a person wearing a wingsuit and falling from a high kloof and then parachuting when approaching the land. And so the shape of the wingsuit and the parachute uh, resembles the shape of the coccolinths and the fluid in our example, of course, would be air instead of water. So um, it's uh, proposed that the, the actual shape and structure of these little uh, plates uh, gives greater control over the sinking rates. Um, and um, it's really a, a simple illustration illustrating the importance of design. So you've got these little plates there that form these calcite plates that form this outer shell, but they actually play an important role um, in the algae being able to maintain that position in the photic region so they can ab absorb the sunlight. Um, it's, it's interesting that the, the whole design of the uh, coccoliths uh, plays an important role 
uh, or is an important for the role of the uh, colithophores as uh, colithophores as part of the marine ecosystem. Um, they're, and they're discovering a whole lot uh, more um, at uh, of the role of these uh, um, um, little uh, tiny little algae species that you know few of us would see and you really need to see them under a microscope. Um, and one of the other fascinating things is that of course that uh, coccolithophores help in regulating the temperature of the oceans in that they really thrive in warm seas um, and so you can have an algal bloom. But when that happens, they, or they release also a compound dimethyl sulfide, DMS. This is released into the air and um, the nuclei of these particles help produce thicker clouds which then block out the sun. And then when the oceans cool, the number of uh, coccoliferores decrease and the amounts of clouds then also decrease. So when there are fewer clouds blocking the sun, the temperature also rises. And so this is a fascinating um, cycle in nature that helps regulate the um, control of the temperature of the oceans and hence you know, the temperature of the earth. And for those who might be interested in that, it's a fascinating article that appeared in the journal Nature. Um, it was called Oceanic Phytoplankton, Atmospheric Sulphur, Cloud Albedo and Climate. And it was published in Nature uh, back in 1987, um, uh, uh, issue uh, number... 326, uh, pages uh, 655 to 661. So that is uh, in Nature back in 1987, um, issue number 326, pages 655 to 661. Uh, the author was uh, Robert J. Carlson um, and then, of course, James Lovelock and a number of other uh, authors there. Fascinating article on how... The, the role of algae in maintaining um, the uh, uh, temperature cycle of, uh, of the oceans. Um, and this is still being investigated. Scientists are still um, having a, a debate uh, over the role. As, see, as, we, as we've mentioned before, people are very concerned about the increase in carbon dioxide, but it's absorbed into the oceans. But when it does that, it makes the oceans more acidic. But the data is ambivalent as to, okay, does this increase or decrease the amount of uh, carbonate or, or calcium carbonate and ca carbon dioxide take-up that the uh, coccolithophores uh, uh, take up? So it's fascinating there. They're fascinating creatures, and they just point powerfully to supernatural design uh, by a supernatural creator has created these organisms not only to produce oxygen for us but also to main, help maintain the temperature of the oceans. Some fascinating cycles there. I believe this is also powerful evidence for an amazing creator of all these systems. And remember, if you want to listen to other of these programs, um, just... Um, uh, Google 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, click on the listen button and go to Faith in Science. 
I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 